Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be talking about practical force length and capsular space. The idea is going to be how do we interpret if we have enough capsular space and what does that mean? We're going to look at a back review, a vertical jump, all the way down to a table test and looking at passive and active range and leveraging certain things like a function movement screen and looking at the clearing test, which is essentially just a impingement test and what that means for us as practitioners in strength conditioning. Also, our pre-order will be available for strength deficit, leveraging eccentric and concentric contractions and training here very shortly. Make sure you're checking out our social and getting on our website because we'll have a pre-order. If you order directly from the website, we'll actually provide the programs that will be adjacent or used at Army with Strength Deficit. So I think that would be a really cool grab and making sure that you're staying on top of all the updates and newsletter stuff that we have, as well as we do have a newsletter available that goes through all the things that we're talking about at Strength Deficit and building in this hopefully more context is what we're doing. So I hope you guys enjoy make sure you check out next week we got jordan alcantar head strength coach at lmu diving into how he utilizes plyometrics and training really tying this all together in a more practical sense see you guys next time so within this episode we're going to be talking about really how to leverage capsular space to its fullest advantage we talked about in last one this construct that if we don't have enough capsular space, we'll have a limitation in the stretch shortening cycle depending on what joints that are overly compressed and not allowing us to move through a full degree of freedom and what the impact of that is downstream. And I alluded to it a little bit, how do we create capsular space, really just going into do we have flexibility and mobility? So this is what really this could all be about here. It's do we have enough range in these joints to move freely and how do we do that if we don't? So looking at it and kind of we'll go through this here, obviously, I don't know when, but hopefully a couple months or maybe even next year, but this construct of a screen and I'm, I'm pretty open about how I, I screen people, but you know, building it out from, okay, well, let's look at it from a macro perspective and start to get more granular as we go. So what is the movement pattern? I think a counter movement jump is a great place to start, right? Like, can they jump high? Yes or no. Do they have an asymmetry? Yes or no. What is their comp compensatory strategy when they jump? Is it horizontal or is it vertical? And like, if I look at it from the construct of, if they don't have adequate space in certain joints, you know, what movement? What movements do we start to compensate, right? So and I, hopefully we're building an image in your mind. And I'll put some visuals actually on the, um, the practical portion of this in the module, but if we look at it, descending down to go up, right? So we're trying to create a stretch reflex in the vertically oriented tissues to get myself as much vertical displacement, right? So foot's in contact with the ground. That ankle dorsiflex and the hip descends straight down. This is a vertical up and down. This is why I teach squat the way I do. And the, the concept of, all right, butt back when you squat, I think is a complete bad cue because what it does, it starts to distribute the force behind us and starts to create compression in the wrong joints, right? This idea that a, a squat is a knee dominant pattern. And if we don't have that knee flexion or control at that range, we're going to start to compensate by shifting my weight posteriorly. This is why I don't rush people to go into a back squat too prematurely if ever, so I can keep more anterior loading, so I can keep a center of mass that's forward, so I can descend straight down. So my first cue, 
is just push your knees forward and sit straight down. That's pretty much my cue. You want your eyes straight ahead. You want your torso as vertical as possible. And you want your pretty much your SI or your, uh, your iliac crest to go straight above your ankle. And I tell everyone, the side of your hip should go as close as you can to your lateral malleolus and thinking about a straight line as possible. So as we start to look at that translating into an actual jump, you start to see, okay, I want you to jump as high as you can. And people will ask all the time, uh, well, how quickly do you want to go up? Like, you should go down pretty quickly. If you, or you, How quickly should I go down? You should go down pretty quickly if you want to go up pretty high. So that idea is, okay, well, first off, when they ask that question, probably feel some sort of timidness off of, of unlocking your ankle, knee, and hip to descend down vertically. And what that does is start to create this second order of how am I going to get up as high as possible? What things at my disposable are there to get myself as much force into the ground as I possibly can? And what we see is two different real big strategies, right? It's hips back to get more hingy and we can see the compensatory strategies from that. Shins go back, torso drops. So now we take a vertically oriented movement pattern, like a vertical jump, hence the name vertical, and we're distributing forces horizontally, which is not going to be where I want to be. You know, like this Oakham's razor effect of if the simplest, most logical way to do something is probably the right way to do it. The other big compensation pattern is driving through your whole foot. So one of the things as we are, we have to really process is bipedal locomotion-based animals, I mean, and we have two legs, we don't use all fours, is how we distribute our center of mass on our foot. So if I descend down into a quarter squat and my shins or tibias are, are predominantly vertical and my butt is back, I can typically keep a center of mass on my entire foot. My, or I shouldn't say my center of mass. I can keep my whole foot in contact with the ground, but my center of mass translates to the back part of that foot because now my hips are back, so my mass has moved back considerably, and that center of mass moves back with it. So instead of the center of mass being located in the midpoint of that foot, right in front of the talus, it's now towards the pretty much the back half of the calcaneus. That's probably my only way to keep that entire foot center on the ground if I have a compressive strategy going on, a compressive related issue going on in my ankle or my hip. And again, that center of mass is now behind me, so we have to adjust and compensate that so we translate our hips forward to accommodate that backward translation to create some sort of force. So now we can see this image of forces going behind us as opposed to going vertical or forces going back behind and then forward as opposed to going down and then up. The other compensation is if I do want to stay centered directly over the midpoint of my foot to get as much vertical descent as possible, as you see, you see heels coming up, right? And you see people going off the forefoot or the midfoot towards the toes. So we see a lifted ankle. And one of the things that we think is important to understand about this is you're not getting more dorsiflexion because your calcaneus is raising. So you're keeping the same relative rate of dorsiflexion. You're just lifting that foot away from the ground. Like you're essentially plantar flexing and then that, tib that tibia is just staying in that same position. 
And that ball of the foot is trying to press. So you're trying to create this almost plantar flexion-like action to create this vertical displacement. But again, we take that tibia, thou that has this almost 45 degree vector, and we look at that as this fulcrum that's now adjacent to that calcaneus. And again, it's sending our center of mass behind us, so it's creating this horizontal displacement. So it's either one or the other. It's my hips go back, and I have this backward translation when I'm trying to you know, jump vertically, or I lift off my calcaneus, and now I'm setting myself up for pretty much the same vector of this quasi-horizontal vertical as opposed to just vertical displacement. And it all centers from I just don't have enough space in that joint. So I start to go a little bit deeper. Maybe we'd, we'll do a function moment screen after that. Let's look at, let's look at the, se uh, the seven key movement patterns. And then let's look at the clearing test off of that. So if you guys have been paying attention to the function movement screen, they actually have uh, a clearing test for inline lunge now for ankle clearing test. And if you really look at the FMS, all it is is just looking at compressed base joints and their potential for impingement. And they're all essentially provocation tests for impingement, which is important to note. These are all really strategies that we see quite a bit with people loading these joints that are limited. So first one, let's work from the bottom up. We do an inline lunge or whatever, two, two. People can figure that out fairly quickly if they have good balance and they have, they're have they good movers. Then all of a sudden we get them on ankle clearing test and what it does is we look at this inline position and we try to drive the back tibia as far forward as we can while keeping our heel or calcaneus in contact with the ground. And then we see how far we can go. And you know I think logically you go, okay, like lack of dorsiflexion, lack of ankle mobility. But what you ask is, hey, is that uncomfortable? Is that painful? Like, yeah, I feel a little pinchy sensation. That's impingement. That's a bony overgrowth in that actual towel joint to actually block forward translation of the tibia without compensation. So it, it might be restricted. You might have poor ankle mobility and you might default to that. And you might have your strategies like I'm gonna do these ankle mobility drills, I'm gonna do slant board, I'm gonna do all these things. But the reality is you have a closing angle problem in that back ankle. So you're better served to creating more flexibility in that joint before you do anything else. That doesn't cause pain, by the way. Then we work our way up and we start to look at we start to look at a rotary stability, which has a hip clearing test. Again, flexion. Do you feel pain or hip or hip tightness sensation? Yeah, I feel a compressive something going on compression wise. I feel a little pain. That's hip impingement. That you have a closing angle pain going on in your hip. Do trunk stability push up, press your torso up off the ground, creating lumbar flexion. Do you feel pain? Yeah, I feel, I feel some sort of uh, pinch in my low back. That's lumbar impingement. That's a herniation. And then I start to work my way up towards the shoulder, put my right hand on top of my left shoulder, raise my elbow up. Do you feel a pinchy sensation in that right shoulder? Yeah, I feel, I, I feel a little twinge, a little tightness. Yeah, a shoulder impingement. You're not diagnosing. You're just acknowledging that there's a closing angle pain or closing angle restriction that's going to limit your ability to do certain exercises without compensation. This is imperative that you understand that you're not trying to fix it. You're not trying to heal that person unless you're a actual actual clinician, someone that can work with people, whether you're a chiro PT or whatever. If you're just a strength coach like me, you're just acknowledging the fact that there's a closing angle restriction and pain or something blocking that range. And that's going to create some sort of compensation and take us away from what we want to do. So what we have to do 
is fix that lack of space in that joint before we do anything else. This is paramount. And then we potentially may do a table test and we start to look at passive versus active. And one of the things that I think is really, really important to pull from FRC is you fix rotational deficits before you fix any kind of linear deficits. Meaning that if I don't have hip and shoulder internal external rotation, that's probably going to be the biggest rate limiting step before I start to do anything else. So I start to look at this from the context, does that person have a hip and shoulder that can internally externally rotate? And I want to look at it from a passive perspective before I start to look at it from an active perspective. And then we start to create this, essentially, this hierarchy of needs, right? Okay, well, I got to start to improve IRER of hip and shoulder before I start to do anything else in a passive sense. And that probably would look like pails, probably look like stre elongated stretches. It's essentially trying to downturn this overactive tonic tissue that is creating this blockage prematurely. And you'll feel it. This is when you get to that crampy sensation. So anyone's ever done these cars, pails and rails, you'll feel a crampy sensation because that joint that's compressed, the tissues around it are prematurely getting pulled and tight and creating this reflexive arc that wants you to get out of that position so you contract. Remember, Golgi tendon responds to tension, muscle spindle response to stretch. So muscle spindles on stretch, Golgi tendons on the closing angle side are on tension, and now you're creating this crampy sensation to get you out of there. This means you're getting closer and closer to the end range, and the tissues that we can really pull on and create this mechanical load to are the ones that are eventually start to change formation. We either create more length in the passive tissues. So we'll start to lie down new collagen, start to put more ground substance in there. We start to create more cellular function that creates more pliability. We start to lay down more sarcomeres towards the distal and proximal end of that muscle cell. And all of a sudden, now I get to that range and I don't start cramping. This is good, right? This is a really good thing. And then I build off of that. I start to add in mobility to that. So I start to do in stuff going into the regressive side. I start to create more rails contractions or creating this regressive angle based off of now this potential passive angle that we've increased or that closing angle that we've been really worked on to create more space in that joint to get to there. And what that does is really override this, this Golgi tendon, that tension type response. That Golgi tendon, his job is to send some sort of reciprocal inhibition to the antagonist tissues to stop motion. And if we're not sending that reflexive arc towards those tissues as prematurely, we start to get deeper and deeper ranges. And over time, this compressed or closed off joint starts to open up. Now, I'm not sitting here trying to tell you that if there's a bony overgrowth, specifically something looking at shoulder and hip, that we're going to start to decline bone tissue from moving, right? But if we have more range in a joint that's been closed off by creating more length in the tissues and control at that length in the contractile tissues, that, that bony growth, overgrowth won't be so problematic. But what my point of all this is, is understanding, okay, we understand from a cellular physiology perspective on, on muscle and connective tissue that Golgi tendon and muscle spindle respond to stretch and tension, and that's going to be a limiting factor. And a cramping sensation 
is going to be some sort of indicator on that. And I think for the point of this is we figured out there's some sort of closing angle problem from doing a series of clearing tests through the FMS or whatever clearing test you like to do. And then a hip IR, ER, and shoulder IR, ER, passive and active range of motion assessment to realize that there's just some sort of blockage. That I don't have the range of motion in those joints from going through these tests and screens. And the end result is... I can load them up, but we saw when we went back to the vertical jump that they have some sort of compensation. Their butt goes back or they lift their heel up when they jump. You can apply that to any other movement. I just think counter movement jump or vertical jump is a really good place to start. You look at asymmetries, you look at some sort of compensatory strategy to get vertical, and all of a sudden you see like, do I really want to load that position with, with more force or higher velocity or going longer durations? Like if I wanted that person to jump higher or run faster and they have these massive compressive, compressively or compressed joints and compensation patterns to accommodate that, what am I really going to get out of really loading up a squat? Their primary mechanism to jumping higher is, is offset. And then, you know, okay, well, the person eventually goes, they might get some neurological benefit from getting more force or more whatever. But that all has a point of diminishing returns if they reach this threshold that they can't really handle and it doesn't transfer. So as I'm breaking it down and looking at it, you know, we start to think about this from a context of, yeah, I'm going to need to create force and tension and I'm going to recreate like some sort of neurological output from you know these big biomotor abilities. But on the other end, if I simply don't have the space in my joint and have closing angle problems and offset length tension relationships on both sides of the joints and prematurely activating Golgi tendon organs that are going to send reciprocal inhibition to the antagonist tissue versus a muscle spindle that is overly responding to tension from a range of motion it's not comfortable or, or familiar with, it's going to limit my ability to jump and run and do all these things that we want to do. So a strength and conditioning coach, looking at it from the level of, yeah, all I want to do is help them run faster, jump higher, get better body composition, or have more lean muscle mass. And I leverage these exercises with these principles and variables to make them do that or have them get that outcome. And if it's the rate limiting step is range of motion or a compressed joint, I should figure out that earlier than opposed to later and develop that joint and develop that space so I can get the most from the things that I really want to do. So the practical aspect of this is, yeah, let's look at a screen. Let's look at what's compressed. Let's look at the tissues and restrictions that were, or the, or the joints and the restrictions that they have and the more transverse plane, internal, external rotation. And then start to build out a plan to create space in those joints to help that person move freely without restriction to get the most from their training. I think as we start to look at this practically, and I hope this will start to you know click for you between all of the other variability things we're doing, is the idea that what we want to do is get more from what we're going to do from a training perspective, as well as make them more resilient from the things that we simply can't, can't ignore, that they live in a highly dynamic and unpredictable environment with the sport they play. The more we can understand that and appreciate that, the better our athletes are going to be. Simple. I know that's something that's probably what, like, hey, I really just want to get to the good stuff. I want to get them you know, squatting and deadlifting and cleaning and snatching and doing plyos and sprint works and all the stuff that you know really I enjoy doing. But all that's going to be facilitated if they have better joints and better tissues around those joints. 
more space in that joint, better better extensibility of the tissues from a passive and active range or more flexibility and mobility leads to a better functioning movement mechanic. That that fractal representation we talked about before of have a joint before we start to have a movement pattern is foundational. That if I don't have the joint, I won't have the movement pattern, at least without compensation. And we see that by distributing forces where we don't want it. We see forces going in a direction that we simply don't want. So all things considered, as we start to break down you know, what we're doing and trying to create this this holistic program that's hopefully helping people become more proficient, efficient, and effective, we have to start with, do they have a joint? Is it compressed? And is that going to create some sort of aberrant or compensated movement pattern that we don't want? And we have to at least acknowledge that's got to be start there. And then we build out from there. And then the fun stuff occurs. And then all of a sudden you see people moving with more, more degrees of freedom, without pain, without restriction, without compensation, and it transfers more. I think that's the part we're hopefully trying to build around. So I hope this helps. Make sure you check out next week. I got a case study. I'm just going to dive into the screens and go through those things individually because I just think it'll help personally. Um, and then the, the final part is we have Jordan Alcantar here in a couple weeks, head strength coach at LMU. He's going to talk about really stretch shortening cycle and the series elastic opponent, which I'm fired up on. Uh, I think that's going to be a really cool conversation. And uh, as always, we'll see you guys next time.